Would you uh, pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the grace that you show to us. Thank you for the grace that we find even in the chisel. And so, Lord, uh, this morning, uh, we pray that you would help us to submit to you. And in that surrender and in that submission, that we would find freedom and life. Speak your life-giving words into us today. Breathe into us your spirit in a new and fresh way. Restore us in the places where we are tired and rejuvenate us in the places where we have grown weary. Lord, thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Two pictures of grace coming to us. The first one is in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 5. Beginning at verse 12. In one of the villages, Jesus met a man with an advanced case of leprosy. And when the man saw Jesus, he fell down to the ground, face down in the dust, begging to be healed. Lord, he said, if you want, you can make me well. And Jesus reached out and touched the man. I want to, he said, be healed. And instantly, the leprosy disappeared. Then, Jesus instructed him not to tell anyone what had happened. He said, go right to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy, so everyone will have proof of your healing. And yet, despite Jesus' instructions, the report of his power spread even faster. And vast crowds came to hear him preach and be healed of their diseases. But Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. And then another picture of God's grace coming to us in Romans chapter 12, this letter from Paul to the church in Rome, and he writes at verse 1, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind that he will accept. And when you think of what he has done for you, is this too much to ask? Don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will know what God wants you to do. And you will know how good and pleasing and perfect his will really is. We'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. This morning we are returning to the series that we left off in the fall on wholeness. Uh, the idea of being wholly surrendered. And we've been using, as you recall, the 12 steps of recovery, which themselves are grounded in and come from the scripture. Uh, we've been using the 12 steps of recovery to help us to have sort of a different angle, maybe a little bit of a fresh 
perspective to hear in a new way the things that we know about what God is telling us about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. What does a life of discipleship really look like? And so we're using the 12 Steps of Recovery, and uh, if you are uh, just stepping in, or if you have been coming along for a little while, you might ask yourself, why would we uh, use the 12 Steps of Recovery? Why is that relevant uh, to us? And the answer that we've been using through this whole series is that the reason the 12 Steps of Recovery are relevant is because we're all addicts. Uh, addiction isn't something that uh, divides us and them, but in, 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 a, in a really real and genuine way, every one of us is an addict. We're all sin addicts. We're all control addicts. We're all addicted to our own self-centeredness. Uh, every one of us has an addiction, and, and as long as our addiction is driving our life, as long as our addiction is in the driver's seat um, telling us, Oh, look at that. I need more of that. I want more of that. I want more of that. And we swerve our life over to get more of the thing that we need. Or, oh my goodness, I have to avoid that. And we swerve away. And we swerve towards. And we swerve away. And as long as our addiction is in the driver's seat, there are two things that will be true. One is, when our addiction is driving, no matter what we know or what we do, what we tell ourselves, we're not disciples of Jesus. Not disciples of Jesus because being a disciple of Jesus by definition means that Jesus is driving. Jesus is in the position of control in our life, not me. And as long as the addiction is driving our life, not only are we not able to be a disciple of Jesus, but we're also not able to have the authentic relationships in this world that we're designed to enjoy because by definition, an addiction insulates us, isolates us from relationships. And now that sounds like uh, DeRider is starting off with a whole bunch of bad news again, but I want to say that isn't bad news. It isn't bad news to say I'm an addict. It isn't bad news to say my addiction is driving my life and, and swerving me towards the things that I want and away from the things that I want to avoid. It isn't bad news because if I'm an, an addict then I am in precisely the place that God wants me to be to experience His grace. I get to experience God's amazing grace in my life. It's good news. And so last fall, we began uh, our tour through these 12 steps of grace. And we said the first step is to admit that we're powerless. We admitted that we were powerless over our addiction and therefore that our lives had become unmanageable. It's hard to do. Uh, we came to believe, number two, that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. We heard in the video the, the definition of insanity. And the only way to get to sanity is that, that we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three, we made a decision, therefore, to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood God. And then number four, we made a searching and fearless inventory of our lives. Number five, we admitted to God and to ourselves into another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. We did those five steps, 
And then we paused. We pushed the pause button. We went into Advent. We went through the holidays. And the question I have for you this morning is, what did you do with the pause? What did you do with the pause? When we pushed the pause button, one of the things that we said was, um, working the steps is not something that happens on a quick schedule. It isn't one week and then the next week and then the next week. Uh, working the steps isn't something that is conducive to following the, the fast pace of a sermon series. Uh, it, it, uh, it, it takes sometimes months and t- sometimes years to, to sort of soak and marinate in one step and then another step and then another step. And so he says it's important for us to push the pause button so that, so that we have time to, to, to catch our breath and to engage where it is that God is inviting us to engage these steps. And so the question is, what did you do with the pause? What did you do with the, the resources that were provided to you? What, what, what did you do with the, the question guides that you were given? The website? What, what, what did you do with, with the, the, the invitation to a group? How did you talk about the step work that you're doing? How, how did you do with the invitation to come and talk to your pastor about the step work that you were doing? How did you do with the invitation to go and talk to an elder or an Oasis group leader or to find a Celebrate Recovery group or an Al-Anon group? How did you, what did you do with the pause? Now let me ask you to consider this. If you got stopped, not just on pause, but if you got stopped. In other words, if you did not do what you intended to do with the steps. If you did not do what you intended to do. If you did not do what you set out to do. If you did not do what you told yourself you wanted to do. If you did not, maybe you never intended to do anything with it. And the posture was uh, one of passivity. Maybe you never had any intention. Whatever it is that you did with that pause, whatever that it is, let me suggest to you that when you can see that, you're getting a glimpse of your addiction. You're getting a glimpse of the thing that you're addicted to. You're getting a sense of the the addiction that we have to control or to avoid. And therefore, you're getting a glimpse of the it that's keeping you from the wholeness that God invites and intends for you to experience. And therefore, the it that it that was with you in the pause is the thing that's going to get addressed by step six. Step six says we were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. We were entirely ready to have God remove all of these defects of character. So, Here's what I want to do. I'm going to make a theological point. I'm going to make a pastoral point, And then a practical point, And then we'll be done. Theological point first. This step six takes us right to the heart of a 
ancient theological paradox. A theological paradox that has been with us since Scripture was first put to page. Uh, A paradox uh, exists when you have at least two equal and, if not opposite, at least contradictory conditions that both seem to be true at the same time. And the theological paradox of step six might be phrased as a question, and it might be phrased something like this. Do I find God, or does God find me? Do we find God, or does God find me? Do I go searching for God, or does God come searching for me? What comes first? Is it God's grace or my responsibility? Is it my responsibility, or is it God's grace? Is step six about me being totally ready, or is it about God removing? And the answer is yes. Um, Do you see your own story? When you think about your own spiritual life, do you see your own story more like the story of the prodigal son? Uh, The prodigal son who wanders away from home and finally one day, the scriptures tell us, came to his senses. And he pulls himself up out of the slop and the muck and he staggers back home to his father And he begs his father's forgiveness. Or do you see yourself more like the lost sheep? Wandering around a beautiful pasture somewhere, you're not even really knowing you're lost. Until suddenly, out of the clear blue, the baked calloused hands of a shepherd come around you and carry you back home to the others. Are you the prodigal or the lost sheep? Do you come staggering home or are you carried home? And the answer is yes. One of the things that I love about this church is that we have so many different sort of theological backgrounds and assumptions that are woven into this tapestry here. And depending on your theological background and emphasis, Uh, you might say uh, one or the other is really the most important and the other one just sort of comes along. Put the emphasis on one hand or the other hand. But what I want to suggest is that that the Bible, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible say comes first? Do we find God or does God find us? Do we go searching for God? Does God come searching for us? That the Bible says that the answer is yes. That the Bible says that it's I am ready and God removes. The Bible says that I surrender and God transforms. The Bible says that I fall down and Jesus heals. Philippians 2 says, be very careful to put into action God's saving work in your life. Be very careful to put into action God's saving work in your life. And then, because it is God who is working in you. Yes. 
See, when we focus on one side of the paradox or the other side of the paradox, one or the other, one over the other, we miss out on the wholeness that God intends for us to have. Because I'm either exhausted by trying to do all of the things that only God can do. If I can just generate enough goodwill and good intention and and, and the right state of... If I could just generate the thing. We're so busy trying to do the things that only God can do that we're exhausted. Or we become hard and cynical and filled with doubt and filled with despair because God isn't doing anything in my life. We go to one side or the other of the paradox. We miss out on wholeness. But if we hold on to the paradox... Do you find God? Does God find you? Do I grow up or does God grow me up? Yes. When we hold on to the paradox and don't release the tension, we find life. Richard Rohr reminds us of the photographer Ansel Adams and tells the story that Adams would wait not only for hours but sometimes for days for the lighting conditions and the shadows to be just right before he would take his photograph. Our work is the waiting. Our work is the preparing of the mind, the yielding of the heart, the deepening of our expectations, the cultivating of our desire, expressing a readiness to let go saying the things that we don't really want to let go. Our work is the surrendering. And God's work is the healing, and the transforming, and the removing, and the chiseling, and the restoring. That's the theological point. Here's the pastoral point. Addiction resists every attempt to master it. If you are like most of us and you discover that there is a problem in your life or a deficiency or a disconnect, you go to work to master it. You fix it. You work harder. And the nature of addiction is the harder you work on it, the deeper the addiction becomes. In the language of Romans 12, The more we are mired in the behaviors and the customs of this world, the less we see that we are mired in the behaviors and the customs of this world. So it's no surprise that in the 12 steps of recovery or the 12 steps of discipleship, the 12 steps towards wholeness, that the idea of surrender is enacted over and over and over again. Admitting in step one that we're powerless is an act of surrender. Uh, In step three, uh, making a decision to turn our will over is an act of surrender. In step five, admitting the exact nature of our wrongs to another person is an act of surrender. Surrender shows up over and over and over again. Why? Because our primary addiction, the, the primary behavior and custom of this world is control. And that's why our primary act of surrender is worship. Offering ourself. You know, when we come into worship, according to Romans 12, it isn't primarily that we offer God some prayers. It isn't primarily that we offer God some songs. 
It isn't primarily that we offer God some moments of our listening attention. When we come into worship, we're primarily offering God ourselves. We're surrendering ourselves to God. And so, as a pastor, here's what I want to ask you. Are you cultivating an attitude of surrender as the primary posture of your heart in worship? What would it look like to show up at every worship service? And instead of asking, is this going to be good today or not good? Are the kids going to be quiet or loud? Is the sermon going to be boring or engaging? What am I going to get out of it? What am I going to learn? How am I going to be fed? What would it look like to show up at every worship service asking the question, I wonder what God's going to ask me to leave behind today. I wonder what God's going to chisel away today. I wonder what I'm going to release. I wonder what I'm going to surrender. I wonder what it is that I will yield today. Worship is a pathway to recovery. The difference between going through religious motions, right? Checking the box, checking the the list. The, the difference between going through religious motions and deeply loving God and living in wholeness with Him is this act of surrender. What, what would it look like uh, if not only when you came into a worship service, if, if the primary posture of your heart and the primary longing of our spirit was, what, are, what do I get to surrender today? What will I see that I will leave behind? If that was also our posture as we came into an oasis group or a BSF group or a triad or a faith walking or whatever setting you are in. Can you see yourself in that story in Luke 4, Luke 5? Can you see yourself in that story coming into a space, a holy space, where Jesus says, if you are gathered in my name, then I am there. I am there just as profoundly and just as real as I was standing in front of that leper. I am there. And can you imagine coming into that space and just coming down before Jesus and saying, if you would just touch me. I could be healed. And can you let yourself hear Jesus say, that's what I want too. That's what I want too. And every encounter with Jesus becomes a moment for his touch to set you free. That's the pastoral point. Here's the practical point. Notice what it is that you are resisting, giving up. 
Notice what it is that you want to hold on to. Notice what it is that you're not quite ready to relinquish. Our addictions that have us, we originally developed them as ways and strategies to keep us safe, to numb our pain, to make us look good. One heroin addict said, every time that heroin flows into my veins, it's like I'm getting a warm hug. One leader said, why would I want to give up my addiction to control? Because my addiction to controlling myself and everybody around me is what's made me so successful. Why would I give that up? See, many of us look at our lives and we can see some things that we're ready to give up. And we want to let those things go because they're no longer serviceable. They're no longer working to keep us safe or to help us look good or to make us feel better. But then there's a whole other list of things. Yeah, I don't think I want God to take that. I'm not ready to surrender that. In step six, the the language is that we become entirely ready. Anything short of entirely ready means that I'm still in control. My addiction is still driving the car. And so we need to see what it is that we don't want to give up. We need to see that. You know, the the leper who falls down before Jesus... He, he plants his face in the ground and he begs for healing. The, the leper can see what he's lost. In, in, in Jesus' day, this leper would have lost everything. It, a number of years ago, on a short-term trip, I had a chance to visit a leper colony. And talking with um, individuals who were struggling with leprosy, talking about how it is that they've lost their own body parts. Uh, fingers and extremities, ears, noses, just fall off. They've, they've lost their own body parts. Uh, it, this man that Jesus is dealing with has lost his, his family, his, his, his uh, connections in the community, his job. He's lost access to the temple. He's lost access to his divine connection. He's lost everything. Man can see it. It's hard for us to see it. It's hard for us to to see that we're not managing well. It's hard for us to see the cost of our addiction. And so we need to look at the places where we don't want to let go. We look at what it is we still want to hold on to. We need to see it. And when we see it, it's an act of God's grace. Being able to see it is an act of God's grace. And being able to see it is an act of our will. Both of those are true. And when we live in that paradox, we find life.
Can we pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do thank you for being a God that we can trust enough to surrender ourselves to completely. Lord, help us to see what we need to see, to recognize the places of resistance, to name our addictions, and to open ourselves up even to the pain of your chisel. In Jesus' name, amen.